What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, and this is part three of our Squawk Pod Reports special series, Weekend with Warren Buffett. I thank you all very much for coming. We are coming to you straight from Omaha, Nebraska, at the Berkshire Hathaway Annual Shareholders Meeting, where Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger share their decades of wisdom in investing and in life. You should write your obituary and try and figure out how to live up to it. Invest shrewdly and avoid toxic people and toxic activities and try and keep learning all your life, et cetera, et cetera. And all the companies that make up Berkshire's giant portfolio, like C's Candies. I like to say that our job is we get to make people happy. What makes Berkshire Hathaway, Berkshire Hathaway, keeping the Warren Buffett culture after successor Greg Abel takes over, we'll talk to Howard Buffett. I think you're gonna see Greg set an example quickly that nothing's changed at Berkshire. A shareholders meeting, a festival, a marathon TED talk, and a party. Do a little dance, make a little move, get down tonight. We're bringing it all to you. All good? Whenever you're ready. Okay. This is Squawk Pod Reports, Weekend with Warren Buffett. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Omaha, Nebraska, maybe an unlikely place, or maybe really the only place you can imagine being the home of what they call Woodstock for Capitalists. I've been told we should update that nickname to Coachella for Capitalists, the Berkshire Hathaway Annual Shareholders Meeting. This is part three of three special podcasts following our weekend with Warren Buffett. You can listen from here or go back and check out parts one and two in your feed. CNBC's Squawk Box was on the ground at the CHI Health Center Arena for the event that celebrates all things Oracle of Omaha. 60 or so of the dozens of companies that are part of Berkshire's $700 million conglomerate are set up exhibition style in the mall of Berkshire. 
Dairy Queen Dilly Bars, toys, cowboy boots, Fruit of the Loom boxer shorts emblazoned with Warren Buffett's face, and of course, C's Candies, all available for sale. And down here, salted caramel and dark chocolate butter chip caramel. I caught up with Berkshire Hathaway's director of the annual meeting, the event's planner, traffic cop, and chief of chaos, Melissa Shapiro, in her temporary office right off the exhibition floor. I want to talk about the scale of the event. And first, if someone has never been here before, Mm -hmm. what does it look like? That's a hard question because, I mean, on the one hand, we have the arena that's like a concert hall that it was completely full this morning so everyone can hear Warren and Charlie speaking. And then on this side, everyone can go shopping with all of the Berkshire companies and get anything they need from Fruit of the Loom, Pampered Chefs, Ease, Brooks, now Squishmallows, which is so fun. Very popular. Um, So it's... It's hard to describe because I feel like I describe it to people and then they come and they're like, oh my God, this is so awesome. And you can't really envision it until you're here. And I don't know another shareholder meeting that's like it. There is no other shareholder meeting. (laughs) It's pretty special. For the day-long meeting, on one side of the arena, 92-year-old Berkshire chairman Warren Buffett and his longtime business partner and vice chair, 99-year-old Charlie Munger, hold court in two marathon Q&A sessions, sharing their combined 191 years of wisdom in a sports arena packed to the rafters. Our Becky Quick curates questions submitted from around the world, and a number of lucky shareholders ask questions live in the room. CNBC's resident Buffettographer Alex Crippen, producer of the Warren Buffett Archive and writer of the weekly Buffett Watch newsletter, has noticed a trend. A lot of the questions sometimes are these kind of personal uh, life lesson things. Yeah. He and Charlie have a routine where... Uh, someone will ask a, a fairly serious question and Buffett will give a, a fairly long, detailed, on this hand, on the other hand, right. answer. Then Charlie Munger will give a a really pithy one-liner along the lines <laughs> of, oh, they're all a bunch of bums. Everyone laughs. Buffett makes a comment about how uh, Charlie uh, just always speaks his mind. That's Charlie. And they move on. My name is Max Joe. And from Toronto, Canada. I have a question for Charlie regarding a statement you made in the past. You once mentioned that you would prefer to hire someone with the IQ of 130 who believes it's 120 over someone with the IQ of 150 who thinks it's 170. I understand that you are referring to Elon Musk. <laughs> Given the recent success, of his ventures, such as Tesla, SpaceX, and Starlink. I'm curious to know if you still hold the view that Elon Musk overestimate himself. Thank you so much. Well, yes, I, I think over, uh, Elon Musk overestimates himself, but he has a, he is very talented, so he's, He's overestimating somebody who doesn't need to overestimate to be very talented. There's a Bill Maher program, about a week old, maybe two weeks old, but but he interviews Elon, and Elon does a terrific job uh, toe-to-toe with Bill Maher, who is worth watching. And uh, Elon is... He's a brilliant, brilliant guy, and I would say that, you know, he might score over 170, but uh, but he, you know, it's, 
he he dreams about things and and they they his dreams have got a foundation he would not have achieved what he has in life if he hadn't tried for unreasonably extreme objectives he likes taking on the impossible job and doing it we're different Warren and I are looking for the easy job that we can identify yeah Yeah. (laughs) if we can do it playing tic-tac-toe we'll do it you know I mean (laughs) we have a wholly different way of going the whole way Yeah, yeah but we don't want to compete with Elon and in a lot of things. I mean, it, you know, it, we don't want that much failure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and it takes over your life, and I mean, it, it, in a way that it, it just doesn't fit us. But but you know, the, there are going to be well, there have been important things done by Elon already, and and uh, uh, it it requires. Fanaticism isn't the word. Yeah, it is the word. Okay. <laughs> well, it isn't quite the word, but yeah, but but it, it, it it's a dedication to solving the impossible, and 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 every now and then they'll do it, and, and uh, but it would be torturous to Mayor Charlie, and uh, uh, I, I I just I like the way I'm living, and and uh, I wouldn't enjoy. Being in his, but he wouldn't enjoy being in my shoes either. Watch, watch the Belmara interview. Station three. Mr. Buffett and Mr. Munger. Hi. Hi. My name is Daphne. I'm 13 years old, and this is my sixth annual Berkshire Halfway Chan Shoulders meeting. And I've had the privilege to ask you both questions in years past. My question for you today is the following. As you know, the U.S. national debt is currently at an estimated $31 trillion, making up about 125% of the U.S. GDP. In the meantime, over the past few years, the Federal Reserve has telegraphed that they intend to monetize the debt by printing trillions of dollars, even as they insist that they're fighting inflation. Already, other major economies in the world, such as China, Saudi Arabia, and Brazil are moving away from the dollar in anticipation of this. My question is, are we likely to face a time in the future when the U.S. dollar is no longer the global reserve currency? How is Berkshire prepared for this possibility? And what can we do as American citizens to attempt to shelter ourselves from what's beginning to look like the beginnings of de-dollarization? Well... I, I should ask you to come up here and answer some questions. I mean, <laughs> they, uh, it's very interesting. I mean, we are the reserve currency. And I see no option for any other currency to be the reserve currency. And, and uh, uh, I think that nobody understands the situation better than Jay Powell. It's easy for America to do us a lot, but if we do too much, it's very hard to see how you recover once you let the genie out of the bottle and people lose faith in the currency. 
and they behave in an entirely different manner than they do when they feel that if they put some money in the bank or have a pension plan or whatever it may be, that they're going to get out something with roughly equal purchasing power. And it just changes the economy, and all kinds of things can happen then. And I can't predict them, and nobody else can predict them, but I do know they aren't good. And uh, we will see... And I, I, I do this as, I, I, you know, I, I voted for both parties, and it's, it's, uh, it's not limited to politicians of either party or anything of the sort. Uh, uh, people take positions, some of them understand what they're doing, some of them don't understand what they're doing. Uh, and, uh, you know, if they put me on some medical board, I don't understand what I'm doing. You know, it's not, there's nothing wrong with the fact that you that you can't master everything. You can't all be Isaac Newton, but, but you can't go around pretending you do or making decisions on it. And, and we are not as well off in relation to curbing inflation expectations, which become self-fulfilling, uh, and we are not as well off as we were earlier. And Berkshire is better prepared than most investments for that kind of a period. But I said this in the annual report, but we aren't perfectly prepared because there's no way to perfectly prepare. You don't know what course of action will occur. And it's a very political decision now. It's a tribal decision to some degree. Uh, and uh, you hope for leadership that, that uh, actually will do something, recognizes the problem, and America's a incredible society, rich, you know, every, we got everything going for us, but that doesn't mean we can just print money indefinitely that, uh, uh, as, as, as debt, and uh, uh, it'll be interesting to see how it turns out. Charlie? Well, and at some point, printing money to buy votes will be counterproductive. Yep. And we don't, we don't know exactly where that comes. And if something is going to be dangerous and unproductive, you ought to keep it a fair distance away. Now, if you have a culture that is exceptionally strong, like Japan, they have done some strange things there. But they couldn't have been the reserve currency. No, of course not. And, but Japan bought back most of the national debt and, most, and a lot of the common stocks and Debt, it, just the Federal Reserve owns practically everything in Japan, and the country's working. It's in at 30 years of economic stasis, but it's not going to hell. I really admire Japan, and but I don't think we should try and imitate it. I don't think we're as good good as Japan at taking. They have a cohesive culture, and we don't, Charlie. Yeah, we... that's exactly right. In Japan, everybody's <laughs> supposed to suck it up and cope. And, in America, we complain. <laughs> so I hope you come next year with a tougher question. <laughs> but, and thank you. And I, I predict I would love to be being born again today in the United States. I mean, we, we, can, do a, we can do a lot of dumb things and get away with it. We can't do an unlimited number. I am still next to the question of two superpowers and when you get into really destroying a planet destroying 
the reserve currency of the world when there's really no substitute and, and forget about all the toys, you know, with, with uh, I mean, it's a joke uh, to think of any tokens or, <laughs> or <laughs> that sort of, that, 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 that's madness, but, but it's also madness to just keep printing money, yeah. And we know how to do it. And we actually came from a money printing, money printing economy in World War II, which was required, and we suffered significant inflation, the price level. I mean, there are a million ways to judge it, but maybe 10 times what it was then or something like that. Well, that's, that's getting close to the edge of where you don't want to, you don't want to hold dollars anymore. You want to hold something else. Uh, you want to hold real estate. You want to hold an interest in a business. There, there's a lot of good, your best, your best defense is your own earning power. If you're the best doctor in town, if you're the best lawyer in town, if you're the best teacher in town, or even if you're the 10th best, or 10th, you're gonna make a good living. I mean, uh, uh, you know, the, the economy is productive and you will succeed with your talents, but you won't succeed by hoarding dollars. You'll just be, you'll just succeed by the fact that you're, your value to the community, which is a rich community overall, is sustained. And uh, so the best investment is always in yourself. That, that's the answer I would give you. Well, we have a situation where we've learned to print money in gobs and let a big chunk of our young people go right into wealth management. This is... Like we did. <laughs> yeah, like we did, like we did, yes. We've been bad examples. <laughs> And I want to say that I didn't realize wealth management was going to get so big when I went into it. And I want to apologize for what's happened. Yeah, well, anyway, you did well. Buffett and Munger are joined in Saturday's morning session by two of Berkshire's top leaders, Ajit Jain, who runs the insurance businesses, which is about a quarter of Berkshire's revenue, and Greg Abel, who runs all non-insurance businesses. And he is expected to take over as the CEO of the conglomerate at some point. It's hard to imagine Warren Buffett not in charge. This question comes from Chris Freed in Philadelphia. He says, we know that Greg Abel and Ajit Jain are the next generation of Berkshire leaders. Who are currently behind Greg and Ajit in their prospective roles, respective? Well, that will be the question that they give their, well, Greg will be, have some extraordinary circumstances, but, but he's going to succeed me. And then he will have, be sitting in a position where he needs his equivalent or something close to his equivalent because he's better at many things than I've been. Uh, he will need that substitute. And when the, when the question comes where we know Ajit's opinion on that, uh, and, but Greg will probably be the one that will make, make the final decision. I mean, it's his, his responsibility. And Ajit will give him his best advice, and I think the odds are very, very, very high that Greg would follow it. So, but it's not, those are not easy, easy questions. It isn't like we've, everybody talks about the executive bench and all of that sort of thing, which is baloney. I mean, you know, it, uh, it, uh, 
you don't have that many people that can run five, the largest gap net worth company and all kinds of diverse businesses. Uh, but you don't need five people either. And you need a lot of good operating managers and you need somebody at the top that allocates capital and make sure that you've got the right operating manager. And we've designed, designed something where we separate the insurance and the rest of the business. And I think it's a very good design, but uh, they would not be smart. We wouldn't be smart to name that decision now about the two different, different uh, areas of the business because a lot can change between now and then. And the most likely change is that this job changes. Charlie? I've got, I got nothing to add. We have a lot of good people that have arisen in the Berkshire subsidiaries. And there's a reason why our operations have by and large done better than other big conglomerate companies. And one of them is that we change managers way less frequently than other people do. And that's helped us. Those Berkshire subsidiaries are many and each year they're vying for floor space in the exhibition hall. Just try to make some upgrades every year. Yeah. See what we can make a little better. That's Melissa Shapiro again, who runs the event and manages all the floor traffic. Back chambers on the left. Yeah. Geico and Oriental Trading are on the right. So we have between, I would say it ranges over the years, like 35 to 40 exhibit companies. Um, and even within one booth, some of our companies have multiple companies exhibiting. So that's why it's hard to give you an exact number, but it changes because they're all wanting more space every year. And like this year we have a new exhibit company, which is really fun. I used the word activation earlier when I was describing it mm -hmm. to, to somebody. Um, Cause it is absolutely consumer. Like you can buy from these brands that people know and love. Right. But there's like an experiential part of it. There's fun right. stuff to do, activities. Right. Yes, we, and every year we stress to the exhibit companies, please make it as fun and unique as possible. So like Jazzwares this year with their Squishmallows, they Fantastic. have an amazing booth that is an experience. And the best was like, I just witnessed a little girl. She may be two years old, maybe 18 months. And she walked in there. I mean, multiple Squishmallows to a little kid is so exciting anyway, but then there's different places to take pictures and there's Star Wars toys and there's all these things to look at. And she was like frozen with excitement. She, she didn't even know where to look. But then, you know, you go to Geico and there's the gecko that you can take pictures with. And we have Oriental Trading with their mascot and all the different toys. And our companies have done a really great job to give people an experience when they come. And it's truly a destination. Mm -hmm. And you yes, you can go listen to Warren and Charlie speak amazing expertise on many different subjects. But then you can come over here and have fun and go shopping and learn more about Berkshire companies. So you kind of get an amazing experience on both sides of the building. Becky Quick stopped by the Seas Candies booth for a peek at the sweet action. We are rolling. We are rolling. Here's that conversation. We are here at Seas Candies with Pat Egan. And uh, Pat, let's just talk a little bit about what you got going on because there is a lot of activity here. There's a lot of activity here. As well, as you know, it's 51 years uh, of our ownership by Berkshire Hathaway. We were the first non-insurance acquisition by Mr. Buffett and Mr. Munger. And we are so proud of this place. We actually have more square footage and we're 
There's a little bit of jealousy going on here <laughs> because we have so much square footage, but it's because we got to sell all this great Yeah, candy. I was going to say, look at some of the crowds over here. This oh is why God. you have all yeah. the square footage. Well, last year was fast and hot. You're going to ask me questions about this. We have started even faster this year. Okay, so last year, Mr. Buffett made a big deal about it in the he annual did. letter this year. He yes. said that you guys sold 11 tons, 11 tons of candy, of candy yeah. just on the two days of the shareholder meeting last year. Yes. $400,000? Does yes, that rack up plus. to about? Yeah, in a little bit, yes. <laughs> How long does it take your average store to get $400,000 uh, That would be a good several months. Okay, so you do so that So 12 hours, several months. Okay, yeah. so that, that's a good return. Yeah. Um, 1972 is when this purchase was made. Yes. Uh, Warren Buffett has talked about how $25 million they bought the company for. He was haggling, didn't want to pay $30 million. Right, yeah. He got a great deal. He says he's he got did. more than $2 billion in pre-tax income that's yep. come from your company in the days since. We're adding to that, yes. So what have you done for him lately? <laughs> well, um, so year over year, we've, we feel really fortunate. Getting through 2020, which was not our best year ever. 2021, our centennial year, we turned 100, our best year ever by a mile. And then we've, we built on that last year. And this year, we've started even better. Um, obviously, our costs, like everybody else, are going up. You asked me last year about our commodity costs, and yeah. I gave you a different answer than I would give you this year, but um, but we're definitely making our contribution. So what uh, what is happening with commodity prices this year? Uh, they've the gone up significantly. So, And they're actually, they're just finally starting to level off, but over the last nine months or so, actually, when you asked me that question last year, it was we had actually bought so much on the forward market that we felt really good. Cost of butter, as an example, is up over 100% for us. Wow. Cost of sugar up over 100% for us. So it's definitely taken a little bit of a bite. But we have enough volume and we have enough history that we have been able to manage through that very well. What about other inflationary pressures? Do you get hit with higher wages, um, higher energy costs? All of the above. You know, our yeah. customers and our employees are living life just every, like everybody else and, and running into the same challenges. And so uh, we definitely want to make sure we're taking care of our employees. So um, our benefits costs and, and uh, everything else that goes with that have definitely gone up as well. But, uh, but we've been able to manage through it pretty well. Sales in 2020 were down because stores were closed. Correct. People couldn't go into them. Correct. Um, yeah. Yeah. The fourth quarter was great, but we yeah we closed we closed very early on because we made the decision that uh, if we don't know what we're dealing with, if you go back to March 16th of 2020, if you don't know what you're dealing with that moment in time, both for our customers and our employees, we chose to close our retail operations. We reopened after about a month and a half. We opened um, with phone service and buy online pickup in store, and then all of our shops were reopened by the fall. Yeah, and you actually had some really strong, like people were willing to spend on things. Yes. If they were buying it online or doing other things going along those lines, they were paying premium yes. for things. Yeah. Is that still the case with consumers, or do you see any weakness? Uh, no, I think we still we still maintained really a high level. So our, our uh, package count, for example, on e-commerce has gone up about double in the last in the last couple of years, and it's maintained. We haven't actually, we hit a peak and then we've maintained it. We haven't, we haven't dropped off. Is that at the expense of sales and stores? Or no, actually, that's gone up too. Both are, both are growing. E-commerce has been growing faster, but our shop sales have also been have also been good. I will tell you, in the last uh, month or so, we've definitely seen average order value about you know about even with where it's been. So we we had anticipated a little bit of an incline, and it's flattened out a little bit in the in the last month or so. You guys were pretty loud over here this morning. What were you doing? <laughs> We're fun. We bring joy. That's uh, we we live it. You know, so we make our customers happy. I, I like to say that um, our job is we get to make people happy, and so this is what you get. We have such wonderful people, and they've been with us for so many years. The woman who runs this for us has been with us. Has been doing this for 23 years. She's been with us for 35 years. She's the master of all of this. But we get to have fun. But you were leading the cheer, weren't you? <laughs> I was. I get to. What's yeah. the cheer? Yeah, the cheer. Oh, the cheer. Yeah, sure. Give me an S. <laughs> Give me an E. Give me an E. I was telling you, we opened a shop, we opened a shop in Kirkland, Washington, a couple of uh, weeks ago, and we had a cheerleading squad there, and the inspiration struck, and we came up with a cheer. 
Pat, I want to thank you for your time today. Thank you, Becky. It's always great to see it. Can we get you in the... Uh, I, you were I'm shopping sorry, earlier I today. Bought. Thank you for your business, Becky. <laughs> I bought a Becky. bag. Thank you for your business. <laughs> good to see you, Pat. All right, good to see you, Becky. Thanks. Welcome, Welcome to Queen. Charlie, you want a daily bar? I've got a number of people, younger ones particularly. The most important thing at Berkshire Hathaway is Dairy Queen. Mr. Munger, would you like a daily bar? No, I would like one, but I'm not going to eat okay. one. <laughs> Troy Bader is here. He is the CEO of Dairy Queen. And Troy, this is a day where you got a lot of excitement, a lot of things happening. In fact, earlier today, um, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger stopped by. What did they say to you when they came here? They did. Actually, I have to confess, I wasn't here at the time. I was at a lunch with some of the other <laughs> managers. But I said, he, they said he's here. He actually had a top, an opportunity to talk to some of our executives here. And they talked a lot about what the pandemic meant. What changed during the pandemic? How did technology change? How did the consumer change? So some really good conversations. And again, it shows how connected Warren is with even our business. Yeah, I will wonderful. tell you, uh, Charlie, I, I saw Charlie here while he was talking. Warren had gone into talk to everybody, I was talking to Charlie. He said, wait a second, they're selling dilly bars for a dollar? How can they possibly charge that much? That's way more than they charge at the store, right? And I said, no, how much do, dairy, how much do dilly bars really go well, for? Well, it's gonna vary. Our franchisees set their pricing, but it's significantly more than a dollar. They usually need to be them. north of $2. That's what I told him. I told him two, two fifty, something yes. along those lines. And he was shocked just at how far <laughs> prices have come up. But that's really speaking to inflation and a big issue that a lot of people have had yeah. to deal with. It's something we've talked about last year, too. Where, where do things stand from the inflation front? Inflation has been a real challenge over the last couple of years. It's no surprise to anybody. We are seeing in our business, it's hitting us in a couple different ways. Obviously, it's hitting us from the cost of goods for our franchisees, the groceries coming in the back door, and how can they price accordingly to offset the inflation that they're experiencing, both in labor costs, but also with the groceries. And that has been a real challenge. And the margins are getting thinner because you can't increase price at the same rate that we've experiencing from an from an inflation standpoint. The other piece that's hitting us is on the new restaurant development costs. Costs of equipment, you know, costs of construction have significantly increased, and it definitely is putting pressure on that end of the of the business as well. Is it slowing your expansion plans, or do you just cough it up and pay for the cash? Yeah, I mean, people are for the most part taking a long-term view of development, and so we are continuing to move on. We opened about 300 new restaurants last year. We will be north of that number this year. The bulk of our growth is still going to be in our international markets, which isn't new, um, but it, franchisees are pausing, but they're being very strategic and taking, uh, taking a long-term view. Troy, you guys did really well during the pandemic because even when stores were closed, a lot of yours are go up, go up to the window type of places or drive-throughs, and I think people were just out back in more forest. What are you seeing from consumers these days? What yeah, we're very pleased that in fact we did have the drive-throughs and the walk-up windows, but yeah. particularly drive-throughs, it made a huge difference in the business. Three years of record sales, and uh, we are having a very strong first four months of 2023. What we're seeing is that drive-through rates continue to increase and continue to remain high. The other thing, though, that we're seeing is it's continuing um, affinity for digital and so we just had a promotion for example with our digital app to make sure that people are aware of the DQ Rewards app we had an 85 cent blizzard offer if you downloaded the app or had it and we had in a two-week period more than two million additional downloads of our app wow. so digital is going to continue to play a really important role you have 1250 stores in China um, 
Are you looking to expand anywhere else in Asia? Yeah, China will continue to be probably the strongest market. What we're looking at now, we had to pause in terms of our new market expansion during the pandemic because we couldn't get into the markets and the consumer behavior wasn't necessarily what it was going to be long term when you're watching how they behave during a pandemic. So now we are reinvigorating our efforts to start looking back at these markets. We're going to start with some markets that are more adjacent to existing markets. And a big reason for that is supply chain because we've had significant supply chain challenges as as a, as, a, as a global society, and they still exist to some extent. We want to leverage those uh, supply chains where we can and continue to expand. Hong Kong would be a very good example. We're not in, in Hong Kong. We want to expand into Hong Kong. We're also now looking at um, the, the, the bigger regions, if you will. We're not in Europe yet. We've talked about India in the past. India is still on our radar screen, as is Australia. So we're really vetting them carefully right now because in those markets, we will be obviously creating the brand awareness, but also setting up all of our infrastructure and supply chains. So we want to make sure we're careful in our selection. Troy, thank you very much. Troy Bayer, appreciate it. Thank you. Great to see you. Stay tuned, more Squawk Pod Reports Weekend with Warren Buffett is coming up right after this. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to Squawk Pod Reports, a look inside the Berkshire Hathaway Annual Meeting. This is audio from the start of this year's meeting in the CHI Health Center Arena in Omaha, Saturday, May 6th. And now we have our, our directors here in front, and if they would just stand briefly, and then I'll go on to the next one, and, and uh, they're all here today, first of all, doing alphabetically. There's Howard Buffett. There's Susie Buffett. Howard and Susie are two of Warren Buffett's children. And while they are directors of Berkshire Hathaway's board, they're also big-time philanthropists. Now, Howard, a farmer and former sheriff, runs one of the largest private charitable foundations in the U.S. The Howard G. Buffett Foundation invests in global food security, conflict mitigation, and public safety. He's been recognized by foreign governments for his work investing abroad, including Mexico, Rwanda, and El Salvador. So he's a farmer, also a documentary filmmaker, and a passionate conservationist. Howard Buffett is also likely to become Berkshire's non-executive chairman after his father. Our CNBC anchors on the ground in Omaha got a few minutes with him at the annual meeting lunch break in the noisy Exhibition Center Hall. Here's Mike Santoli and Becky Quick. With us now is Berkshire Director Howard G. Buffett, also chairman and CEO of the Howard G. Buffett Foundation, focusing on food security and conflict mitigation. His new book, Courage of a Nation, deals with his experiences in Ukraine, he's traveled to Ukraine seven times since the Russian invasion, and his foundation has donated $150 million to humanitarian efforts there with plans to double that this year. Howard, thank you for joining us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Wow, I mean, let's just start right there in terms of your, your assessment of, of your work there and, uh, and just the state of things. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really tough place right now, and, and I think the hardest thing to watch when you're there is the uh, it's a war on civilians and 
and Russia has been uh, very brutal about how they've implemented this invasion. And so you have a lot of people that are suffering. Uh, people go to bed. It doesn't matter where you are in Ukraine. You go to bed. You don't know, you know, if a missile is going to hit you that night. That's a pretty tough situation to live in. Howard, how many times have you been there? Well, I was there once in 1991 when it was the Soviet Union, which yeah. is interesting to compare it to today. And then I've been there seven times. I have three more trips planned this year. How did you get involved with it? How did you meet up? Because you've met with the president, Zelensky. The- uh, several times, yeah. Well, when Russia invaded, it became clear to me right away it was going to have a huge impact globally on food security. Mm-hmm. So we started looking at where, where would we fit in. And, of course, the most immediate things we've done have been in Ukraine. But we have also supported some of the grain going out with World Food Program to Ethiopia and Yemen and some other places. Uh, I think that, you know, unless there's something significant that happens, this war could drag on for a while. And that just, a lot of people are going to suffer from it. And it's not good for the world. It's not good, it's not good in terms of food security. It's not good in terms of, of how uh, other countries are going to cooperate. Maybe we should back this up a little, just your expertise when it comes to this. You have a foundation that focuses on about three major causes. One of them is food security. And you know what you're talking about because you're a farmer, too. And you're not just a farmer in theory. You're one in practice who spends a lot of time out in the fields. And, by the way, traveling the world to try and find the best way to come up with, with new, way to grow, new ways to grow crops. Well, I was planting soybeans last week, so that was <laughs> to your point. But, but um, yeah, I mean, look, we... We, you know, you talk about global food security and you think, you know, what does it really mean? Uh, you know, all of us are going to be able to walk into the grocery store. We're going to have access to food. You know, price might go up, but we can afford to buy it. You know, there's three or four billion people on this planet that don't have the same options we have. And so when you think about it, um, you know, we're, we're going to see the largest uh, deficit in rice production this year. You've seen uh, uh, the crops affected in some places in South America. Now Brazil's done well. But at the end of the day, um, you know, the world needs a lot of food. And when you can't get, Ukraine has been a major producer of that, you know, feeding over 400 million people a year. When you take that out of the equation, there's no way to just immediately step in and make it up. Sugar prices are going to the moon right now, too. I know that's also a production issue in part. Uh, you know, a year ago when we were here, it might have seemed as if uh, things might get even more dire in the short term in terms of uh, just global food prices and the ability of, of getting things around. There's at least a perception that uh, it wasn't as bad as it could have been. Is that correct? I mean, it doesn't address the chronic issues, but yeah, just I over the past yeah, year. Yeah, I think that's correct from the standpoint that um, you saw you saw prices spike more. Yeah. They've come back a little bit. But I think part of that is related to, you know, they negotiated a deal, got the Black Sea um, open to the degree that some exports are going out, not to the level that they would have been, you know, historically. But I think that's had some impact on, on things coming back down. I mean, you know, it, any little thing can trigger something. And so I think, you know, right now uh, there are a lot of people in the world that still don't have access to food and they can't afford food. And if you look at last year, just in Eastern Africa, uh, World Food Program estimated that a, food, a family food basket went up 55%. I can tell you it didn't come back down 55%. So, I mean, you have, and, and, and the other thing you have to think about is a lot of these places where you, when you start to talk about food security, you're talking about areas that are very volatile. They're not necessarily very stable. Some already are experiencing conflict. So the trickle down effect uh, which isn't such a trickle. I mean, it's bigger than that, really, uh, from Ukraine um, 
and, and, and not being able to export the types of commodities they typically export, it, it actually is creating some conflict around the world and it will create additional conflict. So it goes way beyond just food security. Yeah, maybe more of a waterfall effect than a yes, effect. Yes, exactly. Uh, Howard, while we're here, let's talk about Berkshire Hathaway yeah. and your role at the company. You've been a director for a while, and, and part of what you're supposed to be doing there is maintaining the culture within and making sure that this place stays true to what your father, Warren Buffett, and Charlie Munger have laid out for how this is a different company. Um, we had a lot of discussion this morning about succession. What, what did you think about that? What do you think the challenges are going to be on that front? Well, I think you never know exactly what they're going to be. I mean, in fact, typically you'll be thinking about there are going to be these certain things that are going to come up and something else will come up that you just haven't really anticipated. But, you know, that's what the board does and that's what they're supposed to deal with. I think that uh, hopefully my dad lives a long time, uh, you know, follow Charlie's example, mm -hmm. and he's around a long time. And then, you know, the board will be faced with, some tough decisions, uh, but you know we got a great board. It's very cohesive. People understand what my dad has built, and they understand what my dad wants in the future. And that's a, it's not hard. It's really not rocket science to do this. I mean, it's just really being disciplined and sticking with what the principles and values have been that have been established. And and that's really not that hard to do. One um, maybe longer term uh, concern that I've heard expressed is that you know under different management, maybe the company wouldn't have quite as easy a time as, as getting all these great acquisitions from people who want to be able to say, I sold my company to Warren Buffett. I think you're going to see Greg set an example quickly that uh, nothing's changed at Berkshire. And um, when people understand that nothing has changed at Berkshire, then they will still, for the same reasons, you know, they it may not have quite the same appeal as sitting down with my dad. Sure. But if they're really looking for protection long-term or they're looking at the examples he gave this morning about how, you know, the, the people care about, owners care about their employees, um, those things won't change. And I think that'll get established uh, probably quickly. Uh, Howard, again, want to thank you for joining us today. And the book is called Courage of a Nation. You got it printed just in time. Yeah, just for you. <laughs> <laughs> it was a, a personal electronic book, but you got it printed. There's yeah, tons of picture from your from your journal journeys yeah. there and your travels. And uh, we really appreciate your time. Thank you. Berkshire Hathaway shares Warren Buffett's DNA. As Howard Buffett said, the culture that his father and Charlie Munger built is what makes an outfit like Dairy Queen or Geico thrilled to be a Berkshire company. And that culture, that Warren Buffettness, has been perfected over his 92 years. Charlie Munger's Charlie Mungerness over 99. But they are in their 90s. Let's get back to my conversation with Alex Crippen, producer of the CNBC Buffett Archive. And how does the legend and the lore of Warren Buffett at this physical, in-person event, this tactile Woodstock for capitalists. How does that go on when he's no longer with us? I have to say, I don't think it does. I really don't think it continues. And I, I, I think inevitably Berkshire is going to become more like other companies once Buffett is not there. Yeah, it underscores all the more what a special experience it is each time. He's very unusual. You can't think of any other company that's holding their annual meeting in an arena with 30,000 people. 30,000 enthusiastic, screaming fans. Enthusiastic, screaming fans. Mr. Buffett, in your annual shareholder letter this year, you said that Berkshire's journey consisted of continuous savings, the power of commanding, 
the American tailwind and avoidance of major mistakes. You have humbly admitted in the past that you have made many mistakes, but this is the first time that major mistakes stood out to me. Could you please advise us on what major mistakes we should learn, we should avoid in both investing and in life? I would also like to have Mr. Munger's thoughts too, please. Thank you very much. Well, let me... Charlie, Charlie said the major mistake you can make, then, you know, you're, you're lucky if you're in the United States. If you go around the world, you don't have a lot of choices some, in some places, but, but you, should, you should write your obituary and then try and figure out how to live up to it. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, that's, that's something you get wiser on as you uh, go along. The business mistakes... Uh, you just want to make sure you don't make any mistakes to take you out of the game or come close to taking you out of your game. You should never have a night when you're worried about uh, investing. I mean, assuming you have any money to invest at all, and you should, you should, you should spend a little bit less than you earn. And you can spend a little bit more than you earn, and then, then you've got debt, and the chances are you'll never get out of debt. Uh, I'll make an exception in terms of, of a mortgage on your house, but... but Credit card debt, and we're in the credit card business big time, and the world will stay in the credit card business. But why get behind the game? And if you're effectively paying 12 or 14 or whatever percent you're paying on a credit card, you know, you're saying, I'm going to earn more than 12 or 14% of money. And if you can do that, come to Berkshire Hathaway. So it, it, uh, it, it, it's, it's, I hate to say this when Charlie's around me, but it's straight out of Ben Franklin. I mean, <laughs> and, uh, 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 it's not, it's not that complicated, Charlie. Well, it's, it's so simple to spend less than you earn and invest shrewdly and avoid toxic people and toxic activities and try and keep learning all your life, et cetera, et cetera, and do a lot of deferred gratification because you prefer life that way. And if, if you do all those things, you are almost certain to succeed. And if you don't, you're going to need a lot of luck, a lot of luck. And you don't want to need a lot of luck. You want to go into a game where you're very likely to win without having any unusual luck. I'd add one more thought, too. I'd, you need to know how people can manipulate other people, and then you need to resist the temptation to do it yourself. Oh, yes. The... the the toxic people who are trying to fool you or lie to you who aren't reliable in meeting their commitments, a great lesson of life is get them the hell out of your life. Yep. And do it fast. Do it fast. And I would add, with Charlie Wharton, Totally agree with me. Do it tactfully if possible, too. <laughs> but do get them out of your life. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I don't mind a little tact. <laughs> or even a little financial cost. But the question is getting them a hell out of the life. I thank you all very much for coming. Thank you for coming. Come next year. And maybe we'll figure out the answer to a few more of these questions. <laughs> 
That wraps up our Squawk Pod Report series, Weekend with Warren Buffett. You can now watch the full question and answer sessions from the Berkshire Hathaway 2023 annual meeting on the Buffett Archive. It's the definitive collection of Warren Buffett in his own words. Head to buffett.cnbc.com to check it out. And thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in to CNBC weekday mornings, 6 to 9 a.m., or listen to this podcast for the best of our TV show, plus a little extra. Squawk Pod is produced by me, Katie Kramer, Cameron Costa, Caroline Rahotis, and Zach Felici. John Lazration is our editor. We're all home from Omaha, and we'll meet you right back here tomorrow. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.